Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible this morning, you can turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing on our, our march through this, this famous and beautiful chapter that's known as the Hall of Faith, a chapter full of characters from Israel's past that illustrate what it looks like to claim the promises of God and to insert those promises as if they were already fulfilled into the middle of your life to live for those promises. We've already looked at several of these examples in the past couple of weeks. Uh, today, we're looking at the example of Moses. Uh, it's, it's kind of like looking at Abraham last week. Abraham was lumped in with several other people from around the time that Abraham lived. And similarly, Moses here is lumped in with other people that you might call the Exodus generation. Because we have limited time, what we're going to do is drill down at the, at the heart of this text where the author wanted to direct our attention and look at the way our author talks about Moses' faith. The other people in the Exodus generation, Moses' parents or, or, um, or some of the examples down near the end in verses 22 uh, through 23, examples like Joseph, examples like, uh, or, excuse me, like, like Jericho, the Battle of Jericho, or the, the passing through the Red Sea, or Rahab the prostitute, those just sort of help to fill out the picture that's drawn in the middle of the passage where Moses' faith is described for us in great detail. That's where we're going to drill down today. And the spin on faith that our author gives us by looking closely at Moses is this. Moses shows us how faith is ultimately a matter of identity. Faith is a matter of identity. To claim the promises of God in faith is to say, I am with him and I am not with you fill in the blank. It is to a switch of allegiance, you might say, from whatever else you've been serving, however else you've understood yourself, to understanding yourself as one of the people of God, as his own child. That's a, that's a shift that Moses made in a way that I think illustrates for us with remarkable relevance in our own time what, what kind of cost will be called for from us if we're to identify with Jesus. Moses helps us to see what faith looks like because Moses had a chance to have a life that most people could only dream of a life of wealth and luxury, a life of comfort and pleasure. And he turned his back on it because he would rather identify with the people of God in their misery than have everything this world offers and miss out on God's promises. What the text says, I think, in the, in the key sentence that sets us up for everything we're going to look at in verse 24, the text tells us that by faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He turned his back on that identity and claimed a new one. What we're going to be trying to do is to tease out what that choice meant, what it was exactly that he was turning his back on, and why he thought it was worth it. Just to set us up, though, before we even read the passage, you need to have a little bit of a taste of what Egypt would have been like. The story that this passage is calling from is told in Exodus, the book of Exodus. If you're not familiar with that story, this would be a great time for you to read it. It wouldn't take you long to read the story of Moses. And, and um, I think you'll understand what, what's going to be said today better if you had that story in your background. The story is of it, the people of Israel in bondage to Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in, that, in their world. It was kind of the America, like, like America is today, or like England was 100 years ago, or China was in the medieval world. This powerful, dominating force whose armies and wealth and culture were exported all over the, the known world at the time. It was the center of their universe. 
Egypt held Israel in bondage, and because of overpopulation, they they de- made a decree that all the babies of of, um, of that were that were born into Israelite households were to be killed, as a way of weeding down the population. Moses' parents refused to kill him. They put him into a, a basket and set him onto the river, drifting away, and he's found by some of Pharaoh's household. And he's taken, sort of adopted into Pharaoh's household to live. Pharaoh is the, the name of the king of Egypt. He was raised throughout most of, all of his childhood and, and well into adulthood as a member of the royal house of the most powerful nation in his world. Moses had the opportunity to live like a god, in other words. Pharaoh's family was understood to be descended from the divine. Pharaoh himself was a son of God. The power that would have been held by someone who lived in Pharaoh's household is something like, we don't really have a great analogy for it today. I mean, maybe like being a Romney boy or, uh, or maybe, one of the, maybe even a better example would be like one of the Kennedys. Wealth and political power and prestige. Maybe even better, one of the, uh, one of the, a member of the House of England. Uh, not so much today because they just go around and get their picture taken, but back in the day when, when they actually had some power, Moses was turning, it, it, Moses, what he would have had as part of Pharaoh's household is like all of that rolled into one. And he says no to it. He refuses to be known as son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Why did Moses make that choice? What would it look like for us to share in his choice? How is that kind of choice even possible? Those are the questions we're going to address today. Now, if you've found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read uh, beginning in verse 23 and read all the way through verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The way I want to approach this this morning is to give you four statements, four comparisons. I think fits the theme of Hebrews. Hebrews has been comparing things to Jesus from the very beginning of the letter, trying to show that Jesus is better, more satisfying, more rewarding than all the things you might supply or supplant Jesus with, all the things you might substitute for him. So I want to approach this text and the choice that Moses made not to be identified with Pharaoh in light of the reasons that Jesus offers something that what he could have had, what we might be able to have in our life, can't compare to him. First is this. Moses' statement, and what our statement would be, should we share his faith, is that Jesus is more satisfying 
than the fleeting pleasure of sin. Jesus is more satisfying than the fleeting pleasure of sin. This is in verse 24 and 25. Moses, by faith, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And we're told in verse 25 the reason that he made this choice is that he would rather be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, knowing something about this story in the context helps us, I think, get at why this is such a radical choice that he's made. Um, it, it, it may be lost on you if you don't know something about the, what, what would have been available to Moses as a part of Pharaoh's household. As a member of a royal house in the ancient world, especially this royal house, with their system of values and their access to resources, there is very little that gives us pleasure that Moses would not have had immediate and unlimited access to, living where he did. The text doesn't tell us what those pleasures actually were, but it's not hard to imagine. Moses would have never known hunger, which would have been like a, a fundamental experience for most people living in the ancient world. Moses would have never even known what that was like. He would have had unlimited amounts of the best food that money could buy. Without any sort of strict sexual mores, in a culture where women's bodies were disposable goods, not unlike food or drink, Moses would not have needed the porn industry to objectify and exploit women to meet his desires. Moses would have had full access to whatever he wanted. He could have had what he wanted, when he wanted it, with no strings attached. And presumably, Moses lived this way into adulthood. And yet he chose to be identified with God's people. The Exodus story tells us what it looked like for him to identify with the mistreatment of God's people. They lived with no rights, no freedoms, and no hope. They lived under the threat of constant death, not just by the attempt of their captors to actually kill them, but by the, 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 the load of work that they had to carry. The Exodus story tells about the, the children of Israel having to make bricks, often without straw, for, for these incredibly long days without breaks. You can imagine that life expectancy was pretty short for someone forced to work in those conditions. And this is what Moses chose willingly. He lived without rights, without freedom, and without hope, except for the hope that God's people had the promises. And that's what he lived for. So here's the thing. Moses made this choice to identify with the people of the promise rather than with all of the pleasures that this world has to offer. Because Moses had experienced all of the pleasures that this world had to offer, and he knew that they didn't satisfy him. I think that's why our author calls them the fleeting pleasures of sin. He'd been down that road. It didn't end well. What he had offered to him through the people of God was not the realization of these promises, but the possibility of these promises, that through them God was going to establish a new kingdom, ultimately a new heavens and a new earth free from evil and pain. Moses would rather have the prospect of those promises, the hope that those promises held out to him, than he would continue to enjoy the things that he knew from experience didn't satisfy him. I think Moses had learned more deeply by living the way he did, something all of us have tasted, that the pleasures of sin just don't last. There are many examples that we could give of how, how tasting sin leaves us just wanting more, unsatisfied. 
uh, I've written several in for the sake of time. I only want to use the one that I think is probably the most obvious example, the one that shows this point more clearly, and that is with sexual sin. The appetite for sexual pleasure, mental or physical, has an almost mystical power. And it's a constant draw towards sort of sinful indulgence. Be, beyond what Christians, which is any kind of sex, beyond what Christians say it was meant for, for, for a, as a tool within marriage to deepen the oneness between a husband and a wife. Surely part of the power of this drive, of this appetite, is that it just isn't ever satisfied. One of my favorite analogies of this comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He cites somebody, I can't remember who he's citing, someone who was just making this comment that, what does it say about a culture that, that acts like are seen in strip clubs all over the world actually happen? The, the, the guy that he's quoting says, what, what would you say about a culture if, if you knew that they could pack out a theater with a plate that's covered, a, a covered dish and, and just as the, the lights are going down, lift the cover off the dish to reveal a, a nice juicy steak or a piece of bacon or a, a leg of lamb. What would it say to you about a culture that, that, that you could fill a theater for that kind of act? Wouldn't it say to you, if, if you were plugged into that, into, as, as into another world and you saw that, that something had gone grossly wrong with that culture's appetite for food? So what would it say to someone plopped into our world from another one that, that sees things like the existence of strip clubs or the pornography industry? What would it say to them about our appetites? One explanation that Lewis quotes is that it could mean we're starving. It could mean that if, 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 somebody, if somebody was all about food like that, so that they even just wanted a glimpse of it, you could say, well, maybe they just haven't had any food and they're, and they're starving. And certainly in Lewis's day, around the time just before the, what, we, what we know as the sexual revolution, people were claiming that about sex, that it's just because we don't have enough of it. It's because we're repressed, because we hide from it, because we're ashamed. And therefore, you have things like strip clubs. But even in Lewis's day, much more in our day, that's crazy. We're more sex-saturated in our culture than any culture since primitive times. And yet, the drive still goes on. So if the explanation is not that we're starving for lack of access, isn't the only other explanation that can, exp that can account for this appetite that... The desires, the appetites, the things that we crave just don't satisfy. Well, the way Lewis puts it, everyone knows that the sexual appetite grows by indulgence. I think this observation, which our culture fully confirms, lends weight to what our author calls the fleeting pleasure of sin. It just doesn't satisfy. No matter how much of it you get, it leaves you wanting more. Now, I think that if this is true, one of the best ways to understand unmet appetites is that they're in us to point us to something more. Lewis, again, is helpful here. This more that our appetites that are unfulfilled desires that go unmet, fleeting pleasures that don't satisfy. The more that they're meant to point us to is the promise of God that death is not the end, that God is the end. Here's what Lewis says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Here's, here's the point. Here's, this, here's the, the statement made by Moses' choice and what will be called for in us if we claim by faith the same promises that he did. We would be saying that we recognize the pleasures held out to us by sin don't satisfy. That doesn't mean that the pleasures this world offers us are a bad thing in and of themselves. It means if we elevate them to the purpose of our living, they are always going to let us down. So what does that mean? If they can't satisfy, if they can't deliver the promise they make to us, doesn't it mean that they only hint at a promise that God himself will deliver on at, in his own good time? Don't they call on us to be satisfied in him and in his promises rather than running after the corruptions of the things that God gives us? That's the choice that Moses made. He knew from experience that the fleeting pleasure of sin wasn't good enough. And so by faith, he would rather be mistreated than enjoy everything this world had to offer because he knew that the promises of God were his only hope for satisfaction. That's what faith calls for in us, to be satisfied in Jesus alone. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Moses made this statement, or Moses' faith helps us know that this is what we would have to say if we're going to share in his faith. Faith says this, Jesus is more rewarding than the greatest treasures of this world. Jesus is more rewarding than the greatest treasures of this world. It's a point that's very similar to the first one. where The first one's all about just sort of sense, sense pleasures. The, this one is about the, the stability, the, the status that money can give you. Moses turned his back on the greatest wealth in that known world. He said no to it because he believed that God was more rewarding. Why and how? Verse 26 describes it. Verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's an incredible phrase, isn't it? There's a little weirdness to it. There's some question about what the reproach of Christ means. How did Moses identify with Christ? What, what exactly is this reproach that he was choosing? I don't know that we ever fully worked that out. One of the ideas is that, that Christ here just simply means what it would have originally meant, anointed one, that he was identifying with the anointed people of God and sharing the reproach that they had in the world. And the Old Testament certainly shows over and over again that this people of God was reproached on every hand. They were full of shame and, and sorrow. Moses was choosing to identify with that people, with their reproach, rather than enjoy all of the riches of Egypt. I think the overarching point, whatever the, whatever the meaning of that phrase, I think the overarching point is clear enough. It's, it's a call to identify with God's promise, which always means sacrifice and shame in this world, but offers greater wealth than even the most wealthy of nations. Remember, Egypt was the America of its day. The only difference, I think, was that far more wealth was concentrated in the royal house the house of Pharaoh, where Moses lived. There wasn't, this, there wasn't this middle class like we have where there's a lot of wealth kind of scattered down through the ranks. It was very concentrated in the royal house. So, so if you go to a museum anywhere in the world worth its salt, you're going to have a section of the museum that's going to be dedicated to the riches of Egypt. You're going to see relics from all these different eras in Egypt's history. The whole pyramids were built to store this stuff. 
there, there, there is an incredible amount of wealth that is visible even to our eyes because it's been dug up to show that Egypt, they worshipped, they worshipped their wealth. If you see some of the drawings from that time, the, the, the elaborate clothes that they would wear, all of the, the jewelry that they had, you can still see this stuff. This was a culture that identified themselves based on the wealth of their richest members. And that was what Moses had at his feet. He would have never wanted for anything. But by faith he said no to money and yes to the promises of God. To live as a slave who had nothing. This is a radical call for us, isn't it? Very much like sexual pleasure, money has a kind of mystical power over us. Is there anything more likely to creep into our identity, our sense of who we are and why we matter, than how much money we have? The stereotypes ring true. Those born with money tend to look down on those who had to earn their own money, the newly rich. Those who have earned their own money, made their way, lifted themselves up by their bootstraps, look down on those who had everything handed to them on a silver platter. And what both of these groups can agree upon is that however they ended up with their money, it makes them better than the ones who don't have money, right? Those are the stereotypes, and they often ring true. Money tells us who we are. Money is one of our most pervasive and deceptive idols. One of my favorite parts of a book by Timothy Keller called uh, Counterfeit Gods, which is a study of idolatry and how it functions in us, is this section on money. It's really insightful. Um, if you want something to read further uh, on some of the themes we're talking about today, that's a great book to, to go to. Keller, Keller points out that idols are what we love, what we trust, what we obey. When Scripture talks about idols, that's how it talks about them. Idols are what we love, they're what we trust, they're what we obey. And money tags all of those bases for us. Lovers of money are always thinking about ways to make more what else they can buy, how much they have, how they compare to those who have less or more. Lovers of money find themselves caught in the web of pride or envy. Trusters of money crave security, the security of a large bank account. Trusters of money get stressed when things are tight. They're happy when there's a cushion. They're always planning and pursuing stability, thinking about the next step down the road. That's a moving target that they're always trying to hit. Servants of money find themselves obeying whatever it is that's required to get money. How many people are trapped in jobs that they hate because they can't imagine taking a pay cut, because they can't imagine a loss in the quality of their life? Those people are servants of their money. They obey it. And friends, do not, please do not fall into the trap of thinking you don't have this struggle because you don't have much money or because you don't spend much money. Money can be your idol as a means to security and control just as much as it can be a, a means to a new social status that you hope to, to make. If you live simply and modestly, you're always saving for the future, you can just as clearly be serving the idol of money as the person who spends money all the time. Do you find yourself looking down on others who spend on things you wouldn't? It could be that you're still bowing at the idol of security and control that money provides to you. Here's the point. Money is an idol for all of us because, not because money itself is evil, 
but because we are always prone to take good things that are gifts of God and make them ultimate things that take God's place. That's what all of us do. Money's not evil. It's not wrong to have it. It's not wrong to have a lot of it. But if you do, you need to be suspicious of your heart because what money does is elevate itself into the place that's reserved for God alone, the place of our heart's trust, our heart's affection, our heart's obedience. Moses is an example of one who preferred through his faith the wealth of God's promises to the wealth of Egypt. He preferred the riches he couldn't see over the ones that he possessed, that he could see. Where in the world can we find power to make that choice? I think one of my favorite ways to understand the choice that that Moses made, I think get insight into it, is in Philippians, where Paul describes himself as content in whatever circumstances he's in. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to do with a lot. Paul, in other words, what he's saying, let me rephrase it for you, is this. My money and how much I have doesn't define who I am. My money is not who I am. Paul, by faith, has claimed another identity for himself. How did he do that? How do you get to the point where whether I have a lot or have a little makes no more difference than whether I happen to be indoors right now or outdoors right now, whether I happen to be wearing green underwear or blue underwear? It just doesn't define me. It doesn't matter. How do you get to the point where money is like that for you? Hold that thought. Number three. Jesus is more secure than the powers we admire and crave. Jesus is more secure than the powers that we admire and crave. I'm getting this out of verse 27. There we're told that by faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see the choice that Moses made? This is the most powerful man in the known world, and he's choosing not to have him in his corner, but actually to, to rebel against him in essence, to go from being his friend and a son-like figure to him to being his enemy, one who has left him and abandoned him. I think what this, what this verse is getting at is that Moses wasn't afraid of, of having powerful people want his life. That's certainly the surface meaning, and there's, there's application for us in that. Like We should not fear those who can do us harm. We, can't, we shouldn't fear what can be done to us if we identify with God's promises by faith. But I think there's actually another layer here that, that strikes us more immediately where we are. So we don't really live under constant threat of our lives for our faith. So, so, so that surface meaning isn't going to hit us in the same way that it would have hit the people who were reading this for the first time. I think there's an underlying meaning, though, that does hit us. Here's another thing that Moses wasn't fearing when he left Egypt and left the favor of the king. He wasn't fearing the loss of what that king's power could do for him. He wasn't fearing the loss of what that king's power could do for him. And immediately we think, what could that king do to him? But he's also rejecting what that king could do for him. He's taking himself out of the insider's circle in the pow- among the powers that be in the ancient world, and he's saying, I don't need your power. I mean, isn't what draws us in what makes us crave relationships with people who have something we don't have, who, who have something that we want to be? Isn't it that we think by, by becoming associated with them, by being known among them, that their power will rub off on us? 
It's what we normally call the fear of man. Fearing other people more than we fear God. Not just what they think about us, but what they can give to us, what they can offer us. Who we can become because of them. One of the, ma- one of the main ways we identify ourselves is not just through the pleasures that we seek, or through the money that we have, but through our status, our power, our position. Moses turned his back on the inner circle of power because he preferred to be associated with the promises of God than with the greatest men in, in his known world. Think of the pyramids as symbols of the power that Pharaoh had in his house. Can you imagine what it took to get those things built without cranes, without construction equipment, without engineers, like professionally trained modern engineers? Can you imagine how long it would have taken? Even this, can you imagine the command over individual lives that a leader would have to have to pull that off? Pharaoh ruled with unchecked and absolute power, and Moses had access to it, and he turned his back on it. We're called to a similar choice. We fear those who are powerful because we want to share their power. We want their favor. We think that our association with them makes us as powerful as they are. I think that's why we want others to know when we have powerful friends. By power, I just mean friends with high standing. You know, they have something that we want. Maybe they're famous. Maybe they're wealthy. Maybe they, maybe they have a position we wish we had professionally. But we want to associate with those people. We want what they have. I've been giving you a lot of Lewis this morning. I'm going to give it to you one more time. Lewis describes this in a great essay called The Inner Ring. He describes this drive as one of the main things that makes humans do anything. A desire to get inside of a circle of influence and power that we feel like we're outside of. He describes it as an inner ring. He says that pretty much in every area of society, wherever humans come together, they get these invisible rings, right? We have insiders and outsiders. It's not always clear exactly what makes you inside versus outside or how you can get there, but they're there. Lewis argues, I don't, he says this as a quote, I don't believe that the economic motive, the money we've just been talking about, or the erotic motive, the pleasure we've been talking about, account for everything that goes on in us in what we more or less call the world. But much is driven by this desire to be inside. The problem is this desire never satisfies. Lewis describes it like trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there's nothing left. Once you've done it, there's nothing left. To get inside is to realize that now that you're there, it wasn't as alluring as you thought it was. What seemed to exist behind the curtain wasn't what it promised you. Luz says, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, you'll always remain an outsider. Get that? Until you conquer your fear of being an outsider, you'll always be one. This is what Moses had conquered. He chose no longer to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but to be an ultimate outsider. He chose to bear the mistreatment and the reproach of God's people. When he left Egypt... Verse 27 says, that's what he left. How did he do it? Why did he do it? The answer to our questions, I think, comes in verse 28. And this is where we close. Last statement is this. This is what Moses, in a different way from us, and we more fully claim when when we claim the promises of God by faith. That Jesus alone overcomes our inadequacy. 
and makes us children of God. Verse 28 holds the key. By faith, he, or Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses, we're told, celebrated the Passover. That's all we're told. To know why this matters so much, to get the point of this claim of Moses' faith in light of these others that we've just been looking at, we have to know a little bit about what the Passover meant. See, to the people that, he was, that this author was writing to, they would have known immediately. They had all these associations with the, the symbolism of the Passover. The Passover was the time when the, the people of Israel who were trapped in slavery in Egypt were delivered from that slavery because God sent an angel mysteriously to claim the life of the firstborn son all through Egypt. The reason it was, he was claiming the firstborn son is that that firstborn represented the family. It was a symbol of the fact that all of you owe everything that you have because you have failed to obey the one who made you. The people of Israel were given a way out. They were called by faith to slaughter a lamb in their place and to put the blood of that lamb above their door. And what they did, what they were claiming in faith by keeping the Passover is that even though they deserve what, what the Egyptians got, even though they didn't deserve God's favor any more than anyone else did, they were claiming God's promise that through a substitute, he would make them worthy to be his children. That's what the Passover symbolizes. Israel deserves what Egypt gets. They don't get what Egypt gets because God, through a substitute, makes them worthy to be his children. Moses claimed that identity by faith when he celebrated the Passover. That's what verse 28 means. Moses claimed that God would supply what was necessary to make him worthy. By faith, Moses traded his identity as a pleasure-seeking, wealthy, powerful member of Pharaoh's house for a far greater, if unseen, identity. Through the Passover and everything that it represents about Jesus and his sacrifice, Moses became a child of God. Ultimately, there's no commentary here in this verse. They're not bringing a lot of detail in from the Old Testament or from the New to help us understand why he talks about the The Passover is such an important moment for Moses' faith. But what I want you to connect with is that he's really been writing that commentary the whole letter. Most of this letter of Hebrews is about Jesus and about how he offers a sacrifice that makes us worthy. That even though we have sinned against God, Jesus is God's effort to come beyond that break in our relationship and to heal it with his own blood. Jesus is the sacrifice that once made never has to be made again. He is the sacrifice whose blood can wash away your sin completely if you claim him by faith. That's what Moses claimed, a new identity of one who was made worthy by, by God and his promises. And that's what, that's what our author wants from us. That we turn our backs on the promise of pleasure, on the promise of wealth, on the promise of power, because we have the promise that though those things pass away, though death ends those things for us once and for all, we have an identity that isn't threatened by the grave because we are joined to the one who has defeated death once and for all, that through his Passover sacrifice of his own body, we are made children of God once and for all. That truth, connecting with that identity, is the only way you can possibly, by faith, Turn your back on all that the world offers you. 
connecting with who you are because of Jesus and his sacrifice is your only hope. Let's pray that God would help us to share the faith of Moses. Father, we, we so long to own the kind of faith that shapes everything about our lives. We want the kind of identity in Jesus that can make us turn our backs with joy on all of the things that call for our affection. That is a kind of faith that we can't muster on our own. We just don't have that power. Father, help us, we pray. Work the truth of the gospel deeply into us so that it changes who we are. We need this faith, and it must come from you. So we pray to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.